BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. The following is a Hoop Bowl presentation. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to episode 13 of the official Pelicans podcast of HoopBall.com. We're providing in-flight insight for all Pella fans. I'm your host, Nick Garisco, and I'm here with Pelicans expert, Michael Pelache, who you can find on Twitter at Mike underscore Pelicans. I'm at Fantasy Law Guy. As always, feel free to engage with us on social media. And definitely help support our pod by subscribing and rating us on your preferred podcast provider. Today's episode projects to be great, but we're going to have to tip off with some news that is not so great, and that is Zion Williamson. Reports indicate that Zion Williamson will be sidelined for even longer than expected. The Pelicans rookie has missed a quarter of the season while he recovers from a torn meniscus that he suffered during the preseason. And he was initially slated to be out for the first six to eight weeks of the season. But now the Pelicans have come out and said that they're being overly cautious and that they're waiting for him to hit certain metrics in terms of his conditioning and recovery before he's allowed to return. And then furthermore, on top of that, uh, David Griffin said that Zion Williamson is very unlikely uh, to play in back-to-back games when he returns to action. So he was expected to return in mid-December initially. That was the timetable. Now it's looking like the best case is early January. Pelashe, what's your thoughts on all this? Uh, So uh, it's just interesting to me because my understanding, I actually wrote an article yesterday. It's a little just blurb that I put on Twitter. It's sort of just a screenshot and some of the points that uh, <laughs> that I made David Griffin addressed on TV, I, I don't know if any of those were mine. Really? Yeah, I, I don't know if any of those were mine. I don't know if he's just responding to, because this is not just me talking about this, but my argument is this. Okay, so and I, and I want to get into an argument with you about it, because I know you had a difference of opinion, and I think it's going to be a good conversation. So my thought is this. Okay, so if they said six to eight weeks, and suddenly something changed to where whatever it is, if he's not in basketball shape, if he's not in whatever sort of like kinetic movements that he needs to be doing, he's not doing the exact right way, whatever it is, if that's outside of their timetable, then I don't see how that could be considered anything but a setback. Before we get into to sort of talking about this, I want to say that I think they're handling it right. And I'm not, this is not meant to be an accusation or anything. I, I think it's just, 
it's not going as quickly as they would have planned. But they're they don't, they're not wanting to call it a setback. So I want to get your opinion on it because you're a way better arguer than I am, and you also disagree with me on Twitter. So I want to hear what you have to say. I do disagree with the term setback. But first of all, the piece that you wrote was actually the best thing out there. And uh, as I've already plugged you already on this show, at Mike underscore Pelicans, for anyone who wants to go read that post, it's the best post on this entire situation because I think it goes into a lot of detail about looking at it from multiple different angles. And you're right to say you don't want to accuse the Pelicans of doing anything really wrong. I mean, they're playing the situation the way that we expected to. But yeah, I did have two issues with the post. The first issue is that I, I did agree with Schmidt, who made the original comment. I did agree that it, it is not a setback merely because he's not hitting his timetable. I see setback as more of a as more of a medical term kind of uh, kind of implying that there was either a re-injury of some type or some type of complication that caused him not to hit his timeline. Um, I don't see it as, you know, it's just taking for in this case it sounds like he's just taking a slower time than expected to recover. I don't, I don't really see that as a setback because I see the word setback as more of something literal that actually sets him back, like an actual event that sets him back. See, the way I see it is we're setting, we're literally setting a timeline back, right? So like that's okay. and that's that's the way that so I focus on the time I, exactly. And I, I think that's maybe we might be agreeing, damn it, because I was actually really excited about arguing with you. But uh, I, I would say that I think that. Look, first of all, this season where we've lost seven in a row, we don't need to be rushing Zion back. And I don't care. I don't care if it takes 12 weeks to get him right. Uh, the only thing that I'd be worried about in that case is, OK, maybe he it's, it's going to be a more serious injury than we thought it would be. But I want them to be conservative. I don't I don't see any problem with any of the things that they're doing here. And I think and I said this in the article and I, I really do believe it. There's there's a balance, right? Zion is a player who attracts media t- attention in a way that we no Pelican ever has, including Davis. So with that in mind, every single thing, there's already been narratives about his weight, about his ability to stay healthy. People love to go way off the rails with those kind of conversations. So True. with that in mind... And, and this isn't helping. No, it's not helping. But I, I also think if... If, let's just pretend, if the Pelicans aren't necessarily giving us all of the information as it's happening, if they're delaying it or, or trying to control the message, I, I, don't, I don't see it as them being dishonest with us. I see it as them prioritizing protecting Zion over what they disclose to the fans. And I think that's the right move because Zion is way more important than fans being upset for two extra weeks or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Like that's, that's the way that I'm looking at this. Right. And I have no issues with the Pelicans being cautious. The The two parts that I disagree on were terminology that you used. The first one was setback. And the second one was the word surprise. I didn't like the, I didn't like the idea that it was surprising news. And this is the part. I mean, you said maybe we end up agreeing, but I think we'll disagree on this part. Uh, the surprising there is no surprise here this news is not surprising no one should be surprised by this news because the timetables that they give in these types of situation are almost always 
extremely optimistic. I mean, I am a, it, I'm a huge injury pessimist, as you know, as probably the audience knows by now. And I've played in fantasy sports and research for years. And I know by now that when a player is given a six to eight week timetable to return, especially a knee injury, I'm going to expect him to return in about nine to 10 weeks. Like that, that's, that's at the earliest to me. I think it's different to in me, football though. I think you're, I think you're referencing that's football. That's true. I mean, are you? I mean, cause that's, that's fine. Yeah. No, I'm not actually. Oh, I mean, I am for the most part, but there's, I mean, the, the fantasy basketball examples are plentiful as well. And the, the issue is that I get surprised. The thing is that I get surprised when a player actually beats his expected timetable. To me, that's a surprise. It's never really a surprise when somebody doesn't beat it. And the reason is because I think that these timetables to recover aren't accurate kind of by design, actually. I, I, I kind of go a little further into it. I think that there are plenty of reasons that these timetables are almost always optimistic. I think first, the team is likely just using timetables given from health professionals, right? I think that if you ask a doctor, hey, you know, what's the recovery time for like a standard torn meniscus? They'll probably say, most doctors would probably agree, hey, that's like six to eight weeks, just like they did here. But recovery time is different than being 100%. And recovery from an injury just means that you're healthy enough to, you know, to go work and use the injured part of your body like you did prior to the injury. For example, like, you know, your six to eight weeks after your torn meniscus, if everything goes cool, you'll be able to jump and run and lift weights on it, etc. But these are the timeline's different though, because these are professional athletes. The demand on the body is makes an entirely different standard and stress on the knee. The standard recovery time tells you that the knee will be better, but it doesn't take into account when your knee will be ready to play 36 minutes a game on back-to-backs. And it, it doesn't take into account, it also doesn't take into account um, that you're going to be in basketball shape after not playing basketball or not even running for the last few months. And it certainly doesn't take into account the mental hurdles that you have to get past by using the knee and forgetting there's an issue. And you've mentioned it already, Michael. It definitely... You know, or you implied it already, it definitely doesn't take into account that Zion Williamson is a star and whether the team's kind of rebuilding or young and wants to be patient or cautious with their franchise-changing number one pick. All of these factors don't go into the analysis of your general six- to eight-week timeline I, for a torn meniscus. But I disagree. I don't I don't see, like, where where is that assumption coming from? You know what I'm saying? I, I think that they I think that they do consider that. Why, why, like, what else would that time frame be for? You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't care if Zion can run on a treadmill in six to eight weeks. You know what I'm saying? It's about, it's about when they think. I know you don't care. But I know you don't care. But fans, other fans do. And I'm, I guess I'm trying to imply that there's, there's so many other factors that it's not just about being healthy. It's about actually, you know, I just think there's a difference between being healthy enough and being a hundred percent. Oh, of course. Like, yeah. And I don't think six to eight weeks for any professional athlete with athlete with a torn meniscus, they're going to be a hundred percent. I just don't, I don't think that for any timeline that they give because historically it just, 
I mean, it's almost always, this is almost always the case. These players aren't coming back before their timelines. Like, it's very rare. It happens, but it's very rare that a player beats their timeline. I don't think in basketball that it's that rare. I would say for the Pelicans, given the way that they've controlled messages over the last X years, that it would be. So in that way, I would agree with you that you should be pessimistic about the timeline. But this is also a new regime. And part of their goal was to be different in how they handled things from a media perspective, right? That's part of the reason that Griffin came aboard is they wanted someone who was going to be able to do that. All right. So, but let's, let's go with, okay. So let's go with your theory then. So let's say that it is a six to eight week thing, but they don't necessarily mean that. Then the Pelicans took time. I want to going back. I want to say they actually took time to say the timetable. So this was a deliberate thing, right? So let's establish that. So if that was deliberate and they did say that, then what would the advantage be for them with Zion in this particular case of them being aggressive in their estimate? Is it to avoid the immediate speculation that it is a serious injury and to avoid that for at least five or six weeks? I mean, what, what, is, the, what is the purpose of it if it was intentional? You hit the nail on the head with my first reason. That's exactly what I was going to say, probably almost in those exact same words. Zion is such a, a, a media spectacle here, and he has so much of a spotlight in New Orleans, like you've mentioned, that, yes, you want to first come out and try not to destroy everybody's hopes and dreams, right? And like to dispel the notion that this is any type of situation that has to do with his weight or or that it's going, you know, that he's going to be a bust. I mean, you're trying to get, you're trying to silence those types of extreme doubters out there. I'm talking about the doubters who are even more extreme than I am. You know, I'm a, I'm an injury pessimist, but that doesn't mean, you know, once he t- tears his meniscus, I'm sitting here, oh, he'll never be the same. No, that's ridiculous. But there are people out there who actually think that. We've talked about them, right? So that's the first thing, okay? And the second thing is these teams actually, I know you probably don't want to, think like this because you're such a such a more kind-hearted person than i am and you don't have these evil <laughs> intentions like i do well, but evil, you have to remember I, these, all right let's take a yeah, step back you don't no, have evil I, intentions. Right, i'm not evil <laughs> but i'm always seeing uh, i should say the darker side of pe- both sides of people and I, I should say that you should remember that these teams definitely have an incentive to be optimistic at the beginning of these injury timelines why because of money they want people going to the games. They want people to keep buying season tickets. They want people to keep the faith. At the end of the day, this is an entertainment business too, as well as a sports business. And no team is going to just come out and say at the time of the injury, well, the doctor said it's six to eight weeks until he's moving the knee. But, you know, it's probably more like 10 to 12 weeks. So our season's basically over, right? You know, and it's not just the fans either, although they're spending the money. It's also the team, right? It's the the players. You want the fans, I mean, sorry, you want the players thinking optimistically for morale purposes because their outlook on the season is going to be a lot different if you say your star player is missing uh, six weeks as opposed to, or how many games is that? Let's just say it's 15 to 20, or 20 games, let's say, as opposed to half the season, you know, 42 games, or sorry, 41 games. That's an entirely different outlook especially when you're like the pelicans and you started losing games so to me there is an incentive or there's multiple incentives to actually want to be aggressive with the or optimistic with these timelines 
Yeah, and what I would say is, so I, I disagree with one of your points at the end, but I forgot what it was. But I did agree that it, to me, in in more words than that, you were saying that they basically lacked full transparency for a reason, or that they weren't fully transparent with everything because they wanted they have business interests, which I agree with. And I don't, I, you know, what what really bothers me about all of this is that the team is acting in its own interest and. Obviously, the fans have a right, season ticket holders, people who are buying tickets for individual games, they have a right to information. But this whole idea of, I don't know, it just, I think they're all self-interested parties. And I don't think that means selfish. Are, are you are you trying to get into a rest conversation here? No, I'm, not, I'm really not. But I, I think with all, I oh, think with okay. just everything in the NBA, I think, I think fans have these crazy expectations for what they should be told. And... I don't think that they're necessarily fair. And I also don't think sometimes, like, I think the push and pull is actually a desirable thing. I think that's where you find some sort of reasonable medium for how much do you disclose and how much do you hold back. And I, I just don't, I don't blame anybody in this. And I, I don't mean to sound as if I don't want to criticize anybody. I, I just, all of this stuff, man, if, if Zion comes back in 10 weeks, let's just pretend, rather than six to eight, who cares? Are, are we going to be sitting here seven years from now saying, man, you know what? Zion's had a great career, but he really missed those two weeks in December in his rookie well, year. in the long right. run, people don't exactly. care. But in the short term, they do. This but season mattered to people going in. I agree, but I think the it. best interest of the, the fans, even the ones who might be upset, is a long-term thing. I mean, there are all kinds of studies about how pushing back gratification the people who can do that are more successful, right? And and that's not necessarily exactly what we're talking about here, but in terms of, I mean, who cares if people are upset for two weeks? I'm sorry, I, I'm a fan to some extent too. And I, I look, you got to do what's, what's right for Zion. And what's right for Zion is unequivocally what is right for our franchise. So long-term. So I, I don't care. I don't care about two weeks here and there. I mean, I, I'm, look, watching these games, and we'll obviously get into this more in the podcast it's pretty tough. Like this is a hard team to watch right now. They've lost seven Definitely. straight, but at the same time, you, you you have to keep the bigger picture in mind here. And I think that's the problem is that all of us had such big expectations. I will say this, and I'm, I'm really not trying to, to go back to this in my own horn, but I say like in the middle of the summer, I, we even talked about this, right? I said, you, you can't, of course it's easy to be excited now. There's, there's no, Nothing's gone wrong yet. I mean, and, and Griffin, I still think, has done a very good job here. But all of this sort of excitement as if everything is perfect and, and whatever, inevitably things were going to happen. And I think the problem is when you get unreasonably excited at the front end of this stuff, it just leads to this ridiculous crash when expectations don't meet reality. And So speaking uh, – yeah, go no, ahead. No, no, I, I think that's a good transition because I, I always forgot yeah. what I was going to say anyway, so <laughs> – <laughs> Great. Well, no, I want to piggyback off that because speaking of unrealistic expectations, you're trying to place blame or you're trying to figure out who you should place the blame on. And then your conclusion basically is that, you know, nobody's really at fault here. It's not Zion's fault that he arguably, I mean, I don't think he suffered a setback, but it, it's going slower than expected. It's not Zion's fault. It's probably not the trainer's fault. I don't think it's the, I've already established that. I don't think it's the train, the doctor's fault for, I don't think they misdiagnosed him. I just think that it doesn't take a lot of things into account and people should be looking more on the back end of those timetables or even, even if you're like me, even extending two weeks 
beyond those, that's kind of my rule of thumb is they give me a six to eight week timetable. I'm like, okay, about I'll expect them back in, in the game, you know, healthy in the game, playing normal minutes in about 10 weeks, you know, if they give me six to eight weeks. But if you're a sports fan and you want to place blame on somebody, uh, I'm going to go ahead and place the blame on the common fan. I mean, I'm not afraid to do that. I think if you're a sports fan, or especially if you play fantasy sports, and you're optimistic about these injuries, and you kind of don't assume the worst, then I, I think you're bound to get burned, like you're just talking about. I think that you're bound to be disappointed. And you were kind of speaking on the Pelicans' expectations in general going into the season, and you're correct. I'm still talking about this injury optimism stuff because I think that if you know if you don't you know if you hear the word six to eight time like and you think it's going to be five to six weeks, then you're going to just be like way more often than not. Like I would even venture I don't have any studies, but I venture to say like ninety percent of the time you're going to be very disappointed with that. And you're going to be one of the more, you know, unfortunate for you if you're a competitive sports fan, you play fantasy sports, you're going to be one of those fantasy managers who are drafting like A.J. Green in, in this August when the Bengals said it's going to be a four to six injury, four to six week injury. And guess what? It's week 14 and he hasn't taken the field yet. And there's been no reported setbacks. So <laughs> there are countless examples of this every year. I know, I know I went back to football here, but it happens in basketball, too. Um, but I, I mean, we even saw some people with like Kevin Durant and, and, and Yusuf Nurkic saying that like, oh yeah, they're going to play towards the end of the season. No, they probably aren't. They probably aren't going to suit up. Nurkic had an initial timetable of, I think it was supposed to be like late January, February. He's not going to suit up in February. I, I mean, you can come back and quote me on it. I don't care. The, the chances of him suiting up in February are very slim. I don't care if they said it's February. This is a massive broken leg this guy's coming through. And the Blazers, you know, are not that great. There's so many different variables to come in. And it's just another example of a timetable not being, you know, you need to take the latter end. And all these people, it, it frustrates me because all these people, you know, especially these, these fantasy experts even, are like, oh, man, this is so unlucky. He was supposed to come back and, you know, come on. I, I, you know, and they're like, how was I supposed to know he was, he was going to miss the whole year? You know, I'm so unlucky. No, no, you weren't unlucky. You were just kind of blissfully ignorant. You know, you, you were just kind of blindly optimistic, I guess is what I should say. And I said on this podcast, and again, I won't try to toot my own horn here, but this is obviously something I'm very passionate about, this injury pessimism stuff. And I said on this podcast multiple times that I'm not expecting Dion back in December. Everyone's saying he's coming back in December, but I'm not expecting it back. I'm expecting January 1st. That was the date I keep using. And I might even be too optimistic with that now. I, I mean, I, I hate to be right about this kind of thing, but I'm that January 1st, my prediction is actually, you know, too optimistic. I don't think he's going to be back January 1st. It's so f- I think he's going to be back, yeah, mid-January. Maybe I would even push him now that they've said this. By the time he's actually playing healthy, like normal minutes this season, I'm I'm guessing February at the earliest. So it's funny because in the middle of saying that, I uh, I was looking up Nurkic's thing because it's funny you were saying it. And I was thinking how you're biased because you have Whiteside on fantasy, and I've been waiting for him to. I, I've been waiting for Nurkic to come back <laughs> because that would kill his value. And I just looked up uh, Nurkic news, and it just it just ties in well. Uh, so. 
Blazers GM Nick Olshay said Monday, the team will be purposefully vague when discussing Nurkic's rehab. And that just, that's it. It's, that's what that's I'm really saying. funny. Okay. It's, it's fair enough. And it's one of the reasons that it's one of the reasons that I was high on Whiteside. I know he's not like a great real NBA player. I mean, oh, he he's gets, so, I can't he watch trashed him. Man. On a lot. I cannot watch him. But, you yeah. know, that's a whole nother discussion about fantasy stats being different than what. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's an annoyance to watch by any person who respects the actual game of basketball. But one of the reasons I was honestly so high on, or higher than experts, I should say, fantasy basketball experts on Whiteside is simply because all the experts were just expecting Nurkic to come back. And I'm like, no. I don't think why why because they said he might come back in Fe- or January or February the guy broke his leg uh, no I don't see it I'm, I'm at least adding a month to that timeline I considered he might be back in March but if the Blazers are terrible which it, they didn't expect to be I will grant them that but like you know it could have been expected that they were going to hold him out like into the playoffs at least you know right if they were going to be good this well, year so i will disagree with you on zion i don't think I, what was the thing you said he's going to be back playing meaningful minutes when no no not meaningful minutes i'm sure he'll get some minutes in in january i don't think he's going to be playing his normal allotted minutes like and even back like it's like it's like as if he never got hurt i should say so like if he never had the injury is he going to be back to 100% playing? And that means playing back-to-backs. That means all that stuff. Like, as if he never had the injury. I don't think that's going to be happening until February. And in terms of the back-to-back thing, I don't know if that's going to happen all season now, especially if the Pelicans keep losing like they I don't are. think he's playing back-to-backs. I, I think that you're correct with that. I, I think he'll probably come back in at the— I actually think he'll be back at the end of this month or early January, but I think he'll be playing maybe 20 minutes a night or something like that. I don't think he's going to oh, be playing. Oh, yeah, they'll definitely Yeah, they're, not playing, they're definitely yeah. not playing him 36 minutes a night to start or anything near that. I'd, I would guess around 20 to 24 or something like that. Um, yeah, but, I mean, if you're playing fantasy sports, like, that has to go into your equation, too. Like, that's another reason why people are so wrong to be injury optimists because, like, even when they come back, even when he steps on the court – you're not getting like the production that you expected because they they're gonna he's gonna especially in the NBA this happens way more often in the NBA than the NFL but minutes limits right I mean these guys play minutes limits for like a week or two before they even get back to their normal amount of allotted minutes they're like on a restriction or whatever yeah I agree all right well I got nothing else to say about that so are you ready? Yeah, I got nothing else to say either. It sounds like I'm just angry at the fans <laughs> who expected a lot of this. But honestly, no. But in terms of the Pelicans, I just want to reiterate that, look, they're doing the right thing. It's it's not anyone's fault. And I would honestly just argue that it's probably – if you honestly thought he was going to come back in six weeks, then it's probably your fault for having unrealistic expectations. And don't give me the part that, oh, that's what they said – like I've explained, it's not about what they say. It's about just history and everything like that. Let's not get into it anymore. Let's move on to the huge game that the Pelicans played uh, against the Phoenix Suns. And that was probably one of the more, is it fair to say it was one of the most exciting games of the year? Yeah, well, I mean, it's not a high bar to clear, but <laughs> I mean, yeah, <laughs> I would say so. <laughs> yeah, well. yeah, it was a fun okay, game. Well, it was a fun game. The, yeah, we've had a couple of overtime, I think three overtime games this year. and, and then, But this one was particularly fun because the Pelicans were, although we were without Derek Favors again, um, we were trailing by, what were we trailing by in the third quarter? I think 22 was what we were trailing by at, at, its, at its peak. 
And we just had this great fourth quarter come back to force overtime. Uh, we did come away with a loss, of course. Uh, but uh, I think the Pelicans deserve a ton of credit for making the comeback. And it was really fun. It was exciting, especially for the fans who were there. And it was awesome to see the players play so hard while down and fighting until the end of regulation, not bowing down for, uh, no, you know, don't to start use that, that. slogan. <laughs> but, uh, but the fans responded too, right? Like they were there and they wanted that comeback and they were, they were really pulling for it. But, but the fact of the matter, they once again could not close out the game. So, Michael, what did you think of, uh, of the finish of the game and, and what did you think of the comeback? Yeah. <sighs> uh... All right, this is where I like comebacks. Comebacks are fun. I, I think the end result is, it's not like the end is all that matters, but I don't put any more important. I think, I th- okay, let me take a step back. I thought the this was a moment where there's a real opportunity for some momentum, and and I mean in the season, not in the individual game, because you could tell they really yeah. wanted that comeback. And yes. It really sucks because at the end of all this, Brandon Ingram had a, t- a chance to win the game. Uh, it was a reasonably good shot. He didn't make it, and the Pelicans lost. And, and I'm not I'm not calling on Ingram. What I'm trying to say here is that what sucks about it is that if that shot had gone in, the story that people would be saying is so much different from the story that they're probably saying today. I haven't been on Twitter a whole lot today. It had the feel yeah. that it was going to be a potential season changer. Not like, like, okay, yeah, if we would have won this game, we would have made the playoff. No, but it had the feel that it could have turned some things around, like mentality-wise. Yes. You know, I agree, and that's that's what kind of sucked about it because I thought the comeback was really good. Um, I, it's not ideal that we let them go up by 20 in the third quarter, uh, especially <laughs> when... I felt like that was a game we really could have won. And I don't think they matched up particularly well. I will say this. I want to shout out Kelly Oubre. That guy is a monster. And I don't he's not an amazing player or anything like that. So I, I guess I should probably take a step back. I thought Kelly Oubre, Kelly Oubre I, just something about watching that guy play, I just really, really like. I think he's just gritty. And I don't man It's just both sides of the yeah, ball. I mean he's, he's such tenacious. a good defensive yeah. player. I mean, yeah, he's he is fun to watch and he's very under a lot of people don't really even know much about him or who he is. And uh yeah, very underrated player. Obviously Booker had a fantastic game as well. And he was I don't want to say he was cold coming into the game, but he I, I would say his usage was a little down, and he wasn't, you know, putting up the at least in terms of points, which is mainly what he's known for, wasn't putting up the points that he normally does. Uh, what's one of the reasons that you think uh, Booker was able to get hot in this game? I think he's just someone who, if Booker goes off, there really is not a lot you can do to stop him. I mean, there are certainly times during that game, and I wasn't watching Booker exclusively, but when I was, there are a few times that I keyed in on Drew on him, and they were just doing whatever they could when Drew was on Booker to get Drew off of Booker. So setting whatever screen they had to just to get another matchup because that Drew is the person that he is on defense. And it's hard to say that when Booker scored 44, I can't remember exactly how long Drew was on him, but to be frank, I, I, I I think that when Booker's hot, you're not stopping him. And that's the kind of player he is because he's a shot maker. Like that's, he's a, he's, I try to differentiate between different types of scorers. And I think, you can do things to limit some guys, and then some guys, even if they're not, let's just pretend Booker's the 10th best scorer in the league. I'm just throwing a number out there. There might be people who are better scorers than him who 
you can stop more than Booker when he gets hot. There's some people when they get hot, you just cannot defend him. And, and I think Booker is kind of one of those. I mean, Booker scored 70 something points a few years ago. And that was before he was actually right. that great of a player. I, Booker just knows how to score. And if Booker's got it going on a given night, I, I just don't think there's much you can do unless you have a couple guys. Because even if you have someone like Drew who is at any given moment defending him well, without with screens, that's what you can do. Is Even if you can navigate screens extremely well, I, I think there's there's so many things that you can do to get the guy that you don't want defending Booker off of him. And so, yeah, yeah I just... And he yeah. was playing point guard a lot last night, too. Uh, I don't know if that really affected anything, but he was... when Whenever Rubio was out, I mean, they were usually looking to him uh, as the point guard. Yeah, and I think I think where we lost the game, I mean, and I... This is... I don't know. Defense is just terrible. I, I just... It's not good, and I don't... <laughs> it's a very simplistic take. It really is. It's not... It doesn't take a genius to figure out that our defense sucks. Um, it's just hard, man. I, oh yeah, just look at the final score of the yeah, game. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, but like even with the score though, like you're looking at plus overtime and the fact that we run a higher pace. I mean, it's it's gonna be inflated somewhat. I mean, it's, even if it's not 139 points, it yeah it might be 120 or whatever. It's still yeah, a lot. No matter it's what gonna be a lot. Stat, <laughs> yeah. No matter what stat or metric you look at, our defense is one of the worst in the leagues. I mean, pretty much all categories correct me if i'm wrong it's pretty bad it's, yeah it's it's been a bit so and i think it's gotten better I actually graphed it yesterday or the day before and i think it's got what hold on actually i think it might be getting worse like <laughs> i have to go back and see it uh but i mean i think one of the things that bothered me the most and this is partially because we don't have favors in there but man like we cannot get a defensive rebound when we need one to save our freaking lives it, it's ridiculous like we had it was some point at the end of that game in the fourth quarter where I want to say they got three possession or they got three shots or four shots in the same possession because we couldn't right. rebound the damn ball. I, I just, I, yeah. I, Uber. Yeah. I mean, you should not let the opposing team small forward have 14 or 15 rebounds or whatever he ended well, up having. And, uh, and, and Derek favors being out of course, but they were missing Aaron Baines and obviously Deandre Ayton as well for the suspension. So both teams were missing front court pieces, but here's the question I want to hone in on. Uh, cause I think so many Pella fans are wondering out there, like Michael, what do you think? This is a recurring theme, right? This, this not being able to close at the end of games. And we've attributed it to youth. We've attributed it to injuries, blah, 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 of course. But this is the theme, other than injuries, this is the theme of the season, is not being able to close out late games. Now, we had a great fourth quarter, no taking away from that. But again, when it mattered most, we weren't able to come away with the win. What is something, here's my question, what is something that you think the Pelicans need to do differently? Or what's something that they are not really particularly executing on late in the fourth. Uh, this is, I, again, I, I hate this kind of analysis. I hate talking about clutch stuff because in reality, winning has a lot more to do with the other three quarters than it does with the clutch time. Um, but Yeah, we shouldn't have let him go up 22. Right. But, but it is a recurring yeah, thing. So, look, I, you know, forgive me for asking. No, it. no, I, I, it's not a problem. And I, I think we were having this conversation in the group chat yesterday, and I – I mean this when I say it. I, I really don't think we have... I think Ingram is the closest thing we have to someone that I trust to close games. But I, I don't necessarily trust Ingram to close games while still incorporating his teammates. And I'm not saying he's selfish. I think Ingram's been great this year. I'm really excited about him in the future. I don't think Drew is that guy. I don't... They're just... The, the way that he makes decisions at the end of the game, I, I just don't think is the way that you want someone 
to close games. And, and I don't mean that to say that every single team has that, but I think they're okay. I hate taking this on a tangent again, but I think there are certain players who are really smart and overthink things. I think that Drew is one of those players. I think there are certain players that they might be very instinctive and see the game very quickly and, and well that way, but maybe aren't as smart as, as the players like Drew. And I think those are the kind of players to some extent that I want making decisions at the end of the game. And I know that sounds kind of weird to say, but I, I think you need someone who just has some sort of irrational confidence in himself to a degree that's that almost seems unhealthy. Does that make sense? What can, no, it makes sense. What that's from the offensive end. What can we do on defense to to prevent these uh I mean to prevent losing when it counts? What are teams doing offensively in the winding moments of the game that we can't really stop that we're making all these mistakes that are showing up in the loss column. I think we're making the same mistakes that we're making all game. I mean, I, I think one of the biggest things is that we can't rebound with anything. Uh, Jackson, no, and I mean that. It's not like it's, and it's not just a, it's not just a scheme thing, right? So, I mean, there's a balance there. So let's just pretend there's, there's a, a scale of a hundred percent. You don't care about the rebound at all. You just don't want to let them get a good shot. Right. And the other end is, okay, no matter where they shoot, we better get this rebound. There has to be somewhere in the middle that you try to get to, right? I mean, they can't be one or the other. It doesn't help you if they could miss 30 shots, and that that's great. If they don't, if you don't get a single rebound, that doesn't help you very much. And on the other end of it, if you just, you know, if you're not over, not aggressive, but if you're not aggressive enough on the perimeter contesting shots or something because you're so focused on getting the rebound, then you might allow them to have better shots than they should. So the rebounding to me is the biggest thing. And I think a lot of it is personnel. I mean, so favors is a very good defensive rebounder. Jackson Hayes is not a very good defensive rebounder. Um, I, I love Jackson long-term right now. He's just not there. Um, one, he had one defensive rebound yeah. in last night's game. He had a couple offensive and rebounds, I, but yeah. one defensive rebound. And he played a, a, a boatload of minutes. Yeah. Too. And, I, and I don't mean to, it's not, he played through a 32, it says 32.8 minutes is the thing that I'm looking at right now. So, that's crazy. I mean, and I, I think part of it, too, is, again, it's all it's positional, too, right? So, I mean, if Jackson Hayes is in a pick and roll, defending a pick and roll, and he has to step out to the perimeter, let's just say someone like Booker's got the ball, then that means that he's he's probably not getting the rebound if Booker's shooting that ball, if he gets switched on to Booker or whatever it is. So it can't just be as simple as saying he's not getting rebounds. But I think collectively, I mean, we've had re- rebounding issues all season. I think they've addressed some of it by changing how they defend when they're on pick and roll coverages, they're dropping the big back more and, and allowing him to be closer to the rim. But even then, I mean, rebounding is just, it's just an issue. And I, it's so funny. It's its like everybody's brain just has a brain fart at the exact same time. Cause as soon as the ball goes up, everybody's just standing there. And that's something, I mean, I, it's not just coaching to me. Cause I, I think it's a lot of it is awareness and the ability to, to simultaneously remember, okay, the shot's going up. I don't know if that seems simultaneous. The shot's going up. I need to box someone out. I need to put a body on a body. And that's where... I was getting frustrated with Lonzo, actually, in not in the Suns game, but in the Mavs game, uh, the game before that. I was getting frustrated. That was the game where Lonzo actually shot 12. uh, I think he was 2 for 12 from behind the arc, which is, you know, crazy for somebody like Lonzo. Not that he's a terrible three-point shooter, but just the the volume that he's shooting these threes at. I mean, he was open for a lot of them, but so many of his rebounds, like so many times on his threes, 
the re- it was one of those situations where, where you're in little bitty ball and you always say follow your shot, you know, back in the day. So many of his rebounds would bounce like kind of right back to him. And but the defender would get there before he did because he just because he didn't like step up a little. And he started realizing it actually. It's like got to the point where like midway through the uh, it happened like two or three times and then midway through the match game, he actually started following his shots, which I thought like even after he shot him, which is usually a bad sign because it usually means the player thinks he's gonna miss. And he was missing, but yeah, no, it, it was just an observation I had. It was something I kind of got aggravated with Lonzo about. But I do want your take on Lonzo for this game because this was his best game as a Pelican. He had seven turnovers, but the rest of the numbers were uh, definitely Pelican's highs for him. Uh, so w- what do you think about Lonzo's game individually last night? I think it was better. I mean, I think... I, I think people are going off the deep end hating on Lonzo at this point. Uh, I, I will admit that I, he has not been what I thought he would be. We had talked about him not being a pure point guard before the season even started, so that's not a surprise to me. But I, it's been a surprise how much it, that he isn't that. And I think a lot of it relates to his ability to get to the rim and to be a threat there. We've talked about this ad nauseum, so this is not new, but uh, that's a real problem when you're trying to run an offense. Now, with that said, I thought today, or I should say yesterday, I think that he, I thought that some of that was better. I, I thought he was attacking the rim, and even if the results weren't great, I remember one time he threw his body into some sort of shot blocker, or I, shot blocker might be a loose term for whoever de- the Phoenix defender was, but uh, he threw his body into a big, and the guy the guy went into, uh, he went through two or three feet the other way. Lonzo took a shot, and I, and I mean it didn't even touch the rim. It went off the backboard, but it actually wound up being a dunk because Jackson Hayes was on the other side of the rim. So that said, I, I'm a process over results guy for younger players, so I like the ideas, um, and I think the execution comes over time. So with that said, I like that. I like that Gentry said he should stop taking step-back threes. He should not be taking step-back threes early in the shot clock. I think he actually made yeah. one yesterday, but he shouldn't be. He's not... He's not the level of shooter that should be doing that. And I think part of the problem no, is there are better plays. There are better be plays, and I think it's it's bailing him out of doing what he should be doing, which is trying to get into the paint some way, somehow. Even if he's not trying to shoot, I think teams are aware of the fact that he doesn't want to shoot, and I think that they treat him as such. And I think, but you have to get there. You have to at least try to get there, and that's that should be your initial, I guess. That should be what you're trying to do pretty much almost every possession. And then there are certain times, if you're a great shooter, like if Damian Lillard walks up and they're all dropping back waiting for that, I mean, Damian Lillard can take that shot all day. I mean, that's that's a different player. I, I just think with Lonzo, I, it's a process over results thing. I thought it was a little better last night. I think that people are a little bit too low on him right now. I think they've kind of overcorrected, but he has some real things to work on. That's I mean, that's a thing. Yeah, it seems like a lot of the players have real things to work on. Uh, one thing that needed to be worked on last night was the bench for the Pelicans. It was very weak. Uh, the starters were actually all you know, pretty solid last night, in my opinion, at least pretty solid. I, I would say they were all pretty good, especially you know when it counted. I mean, or sorry, I shouldn't say when it counted. But in the fourth quarter, and for the most part throughout the game, the starters all played pretty well. But the bench was really non-existent now the pelicans have had certain players coming from the bench have these you know nice nights like frank jackson's had a couple of really good games where he's gotten hot 
Uh, Josh Hart, depending on if he comes off the bench or not, is has had a good season for the most part, of course. Um, Kenrich Williams, he's actually mainly played well when he's been a starter. But, but my point is that they've had individual performances that have been pretty solid off the bench, you know, Reddick some nights. What was up with last night? I mean, where where were the players on the bench? Uh, I that's a great question. They weren't there. I mean, so the starters were basically all within a few points of even on plus and minus. And not that that's the perfect measure, but if you're trying to look, like you don't have to explain it. Just when they were on the court, was the team doing well? Um, and last night, that really was more the starters than it was the bench. And I think. I, don't, I mean, I, I would say that our bench has a lot of players you really can't count on at this point, um, given our depth issues. So, I mean, look at it. So, Kenrich is, we've talked about Kenrich. He's, he's usually starting, or he has been starting more recently. He wasn't last night. Um, I don't know if that'll change since Lonzo's back now, um, and, and maybe Lonzo will stay in the starting lineup with Redick. Uh, maybe Kenrich will replace Redick. But, so, Kenrich, Kenrich is really best when he's paired with other people who are going to score a lot. And so in some ways, I think it'd be a more natural fit to put him with the starting unit and let him do the little things while the other guys score and stuff. Uh, I would say, I mean, Josh Hart. So Josh Hart had a stretch during that. And I'm not hating on Hart because Hart is very often a, a positive player for us. But he missed. He had, let's see. He had seven threes in a span of about nine minutes in the third quarter. He missed six of them. And. Uh, look, sometimes that's those are shots that he would make. Uh, he probably took a couple shots he shouldn't have taken. Um, but I would say, like, so besides him, so again, we're going down the list here. So Kenrich should be starting probably at this point. Hart, you know, he'll have nights where he's off. He was off. That's okay. Melly, I just, I struggle with Melly, man. I, and I, I don't mean that to be negative. He had yeah. a couple positive plays, including steals. But I think Melly hurts us a lot because he's just so... I would say as a team defender, like even if he knows how to position himself, he's just so slow, man. And I, people say that he's quicker than I give him credit for. I don't know that he is. I think there are times where he'll have a possession here and there where he's moving well, but he's just in a perimeter-oriented game, I think he struggles. And I think especially even if you have him near the rim, he's not contesting shots. And so what is he really doing out there? I mean, he's really just out there to shoot threes. That's basically it. I, and I think you can get that at other positions, but you can also get more from the other facets of the game. And then we'll go down to Nikhil, because I, I had a, a love affair with talking about how good Nikhil was this summer, and he's just been struggling. I mean, he's a rookie, but he's he's been really struggling. Um, so you really can't count on him for a whole lot at this point. And then Frank Jackson, who's more or less been out of the lineup. I mean, so what is there there to get excited about right now? Um, not a lot. Yeah. and. And each one, each, each one more. Didn't play. Just, you know, yeah, so yeah. I, I just, yeah, I mean, it's not, and I don't hate any of those players. I'm not saying that. Just, I, if you look at that line, those lineups, I mean, there's just not a lot of scoring talent there. I mean, there's just, there's just. No, we just need favors and Zion yeah. back. I mean, that's pretty much what it comes down to because that pushes everybody yes. else kind of back into their roles where they're supposed to be. It's, so it's not as simple as just saying, oh, Zion and Favors come back, so no, it 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 puts everybody puts all the other puzzle pieces in place yes. when they're there, like they were projected to be going in, and so I mean, especially Favors. Look, I get Zion's going to be out a, a while, you know, January, February, who knows? But 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 Favors had his mother pass. It's an unfortunate situation, of course, uh, but. You know, I, I'm hoping that he'll be able to return to play. You know, sometime this week, 
Um, I know that part of the problem, or I shouldn't say problem, because it's obviously a tragic uh, death in his family and it's his mother. Part of the reason that he's missed so many games because of this personal issue was because I know that the funeral is in Atlanta. And I think that a lot of people um, don't realize uh, when a player has a death in the family, when an athlete has death in the family, they always just kind of assume like, Oh, well, okay, you can go to the funeral in New Orleans and then be back, you know, <laughs> in the next... No, no, because the player always has to make travel arrangement. And usually the athlete is also probably, uh, for lack of better words, the richest person in the family. So usually they have a massive um, uh, influence on the funeral, if that makes sense. And they need to be there basically to to finance everything and to uh, help coordinate that kind of stuff. Whole point of all this is that while I'm not surprised Favors has missed uh, a lot of basketball here, and it's, of course, unfortunate, I am hoping that he'll return soon because I really think that puts Jackson Hayes back in a in – a, I think he's going to be great in a uh, kind of a change of pace bench role at center. I agree. Know? I think that's a more natural role, and I think that was a well-explained thing because it's not that any of the individual players on the bench are bad. It's just they're being placed in roles where they really don't – they're not really meant to yeah. be. And I, I think when you have two people back or even just one person back, it's amazing what happens when people slide into roles that they're meant to occupy. I do think – I really do think right. this. I think they need to move Kenrich to the uh, starting lineup. I really think it will be better. Um, and I do think that J.J. be better on the bench because J.J. is – J.J. has been lights out from three. But at the he has been hot lately. At the same time, man, when one of the problems with playing JJ is that when he is on defense, man, there's just not that much you can do to hide him. He's not particularly fast. He's not tall enough, and and he's still probably a net positive on the floor. I think in in many ways, but I just I I think he's better. I think the the starting lineup is better optimized with Kenrich out there right now, and I think um, that would be the move that I would make. I like that you're making a stand and saying a move because that's that's rare for a lot of people to do. And I like that you're saying, okay, this guy needs to be starting, this guy needs to be benched. It's very clear cut uh, analysis there. Uh, I, I just interesting thing I just thought about JJ is he the only player that well, you know how we acquired all these new players? Yeah. I mean, I think only uh, I forgot the stat there, but I think only uh, eight of our what are we rostering like? Well, it's 15 total, but then you had the three 15. two-way players. I think it was six. I think it was six out of 15 players were Pelicans last year. So we obviously acquired like nine or ten different players here. And out of all of them, is J.J. Redick the only one kind of playing like we expected him to? And I'm not saying good or bad. I'm just saying he's the only one who hasn't surprised us in either a good way or a bad you, you're way. You're talking about the like, new right, guys? Like we kind of— yeah, out of all the new players, yes. Uh, is JJ the only one playing like we kind of thought he would? Um, uh, That's a hard question. Seems like it to uh, me, at least. I would say, okay, so let's go down the list, right? So, okay, so JJ, Drew, we already, already covered all those, and then Drew's not new. Hart's been ex- Hart has been better than I expected. Zion has not been expected because he's been hurt. So, okay. uh, you know, that's been a surprise. And then you have um, – and then – you have um, Hayes is probably gosh, slightly I, outperformed. Hayes, I, I would say Hayes is slightly outperformed. I would say he, I, he's not much better yeah. than I thought he would be. I, I think he's as an energy guy. He's, he's doing playing what he a would lot do. more. I think his positioning has been better than I expected on defense, but his rebounding has been an issue on defense as well. 
Um, all right, so Josh Hart, I agree, has been slightly better than I expected. Lonzo has been slightly but worse. This is not the role. No. Yeah, this is not the role that I expected Hayes no. to be in. Favors honestly been you know a disappointment so far for a variety of different reasons. And then uh, I'm gonna I don't know. It just seems to me like Reddick was whether it's good or bad. You know whether they outperformed or or underperforming for whatever reason, or just being a different role or different player than we thought. It seems like JJ Reddick is the only one who kind of came in and he's kind of giving us exactly what we expected well, of him. Well, let me let me do and, one caveat. Uh, yeah, I think I think you're right. I would say that part of it, though, is he's he's probably not going to shoot forty seven percent from through the rest of the year. But it's actually possible he's done it before, so <laughs> it's not it's not impossible. Yeah. But I agree. I think his overall effect has been pretty much exactly what we thought. And I think I think you nailed it. I hadn't thought of it that way before. Yeah, yeah. it's a good thing. I mean, we had good expectations, but not great expectations for JJ, and he's he's been a good player for us. It's good that we have him on the team. Let's talk big picture, and then we'll give our our our, sh- our final shout outs. Uh, big picture, real quick. The Pelicans are six and sixteen right now, and that coveted eighth seed still is in possession of the Sun. Or the Suns are still in possession of that, and it seems like they've had the eighth seed for, gosh, like a month now. Uh, and but they are only ten and eleven. So that's another reason why last night's game was so kind of devastating that we couldn't close it out because then you're looking at. You know, then we're seven and fifteen, which you know obviously doesn't sound great on the surface. But then, of course, the Suns are ten and um, yeah, ten and twelve, and you know now it's six and sixteen versus ten and eleven. It's a game difference, of course, but the Pelicans. The fact of the matter: the Pelicans are almost at the bottom of the Western Conference standings. Uh, let me get your opinion. Do you think it's time to call this now with the Zion news? Now the fact that we dropped this game to the Suns. Now the fact that we have lost seven straight. We're six and sixteen. With all of the things that happened in the last week, Michael, do are you willing to concede this as a uh, as a rebuilding year and put that balancing scale more on uh, development yet, or are you still competing? For the eight seed, uh, I'm really close to shifting. I'm still probably five games away. I'd say that's exactly. Really? That's exactly. <laughs> I wasn't gonna say five. I was. I was a little more. I was gonna say by the next episode, I'll. If we keep losing, I was gonna say the next episode, I'm probably gonna. Call yeah, it's it's it. pretty close. I think it's pretty close. I think the time is is nearing where it's just gonna make more sense. Yeah. I wrote an article about it today, and I, I don't know if I put a number on it, but five is the right. Uh, three to five, whatever. I mean, yours might be three, it might be five. I, I think we're pretty close. Well, it depends on if we drop yeah, all well, five. Sure, yeah. If we right, mm, and yeah. oddly, it's probably going to be right around the time when <laughs> Scion's you know, projected to be back or whatever. So, yeah, I'm I'm cool with that. Yeah, according uh, to you. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That's no, true. I'm just checking. Uh, anyway, let's give a few shout outs uh, before we leave the show today. Uh, I, I'll go first, and uh, we thought it was going to be a cool idea to give. Uh, positive shout outs for each show to end the show on a good note um, don't have to be basketball related here but uh, mine is this week uh, I want to give a shout out to uh, Joel Myers who on the Dallas Mavericks game I believe it was Tuesday night he was not supp- it was on TNT and he was not supposed to call that game uh, but the the lead uh, the lead guy the lead anchor I guess Kevin Harlan had lost his voice and they immediately went to Joel, who was just sitting in the stands, I believe, and just watching the game as a fan. Uh, they went up to him and said, hey, you know, Kevin Harlan lost his voice. And he immediately said, I'll fill in. 
He didn't even let him ask a question. He just said, I'll fill in. And it's not, I'm not just giving him a shout out for that. I was going to give him a shout out just because I just think that Joel Myers is honestly incredible. I, I think he's so great at his job and the way that he was able to call that game for an entirely different network than he's normally with, like different commentators. I think it was Reggie Miller he was with. Um, his knowledge of the league, the whole league in general, is really admirable. And his lack of bias on that national scale when he's working with the TNT crew, I mean, gosh, he was really just the star of the show, I thought, and he was just a fill-in. You know what I'm saying? So, I don't know. I, I definitely want to give props to Joel Myers. The Pelicans, I think, you might disagree. You watch uh, all the games here. Uh, but I think the Pelicans have a great one in, in Joel Myers. No, I, I agree. Joel's pretty great. I actually met him. I don't do a lot of on-site coverage, and I've been doing this for, whatever, 10 years, um, mostly from the comfort of my own couch. But uh, I went, like, to maybe two or three games, and I met him, I think, twice. And the second time he remembered me, and I'm a peon, so I'd, you know, I'd, the fact that he remembered me was pretty cool because he meets just a bazillion people and very sharp, very professional, um, smooth voice. Yeah, I, I don't know why that's <laughs> – that was an odd, odd order of things, but uh, yeah, it's good. I no, some people have aggravating. Yeah, voices. I agree. No, Joel's great, and uh, and I have a shout out too. I it kind of uh, very different in in its tone, but let's talk about wool socks for a second because for many years I I never I didn't know like people talked about wool socks, and I just didn't I didn't buy it. I didn't have any interest in buying wool socks. We live in Louisiana, but before I went to Spain, uh, I got a bazillion wool socks because I knew how cold it was going to be. And let me tell you something. Those things, dude, like, I, 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 hate, I hate that I'm getting so excited about wool socks because I feel like this is the most excited I've been talking about anything in maybe, like, a couple weeks. Well, we're, <laughs> on a, we're in the midst of a seven-game losing streak. Yeah, but I have a life, too. And, like, what I'm wanting to talk about is wool socks. But, so, dude, oh, you put wool really socks not. on, man, and, like, your bro just changed. Like, you're just, like, you're I, – I just don't know how to explain it. I, it's, like, one of those things where I don't even know – where to start, but I just, you're, you're warm like all the time as I guess that's the whole point of wearing wool. Uh, I don't know. I'm just a fan, man. I don't like it. It's really shitty analysis. And I mean, I've been cursing a lot this episode. I'm sorry. Uh, but wool socks are great. You should buy them. If you don't have them, go to your local like store nearby, uh, buy some nice wool socks. I promise you, you will not be disappointed. Yeah. So the cool thing about wool socks is that when you wear them, you're obviously not wearing them as shorts, right? Because the whole point is to be warm. Uh, you can wear them under, you know, pants, and nobody's gonna know. Like if you're, if you work at an office or something like that, nobody's really gonna know as long as they're like brown, you know, and not just like basic white. Nobody's really gonna know that you're not wearing yes. dress socks for your job. Yeah. You know, uh, I remember back in when we were young in high school, and I'd wear jeans. And one, and I still do it sometimes to this day, like when I wear jeans or boots or whatever, um, I will still wear soccer socks when it's really cold out. What I'll do is I'll put my regular sock on. I remember this. (laughs) And then what I'll do is I'll put, yeah, I still do it. I'll put my regular sock on and then I'll put soccer socks over my regular socks. So I'm not only my double layer in my feet, but the soccer sock goes all the way up to your knee pretty much. And Nick, you're wearing you know, stockings. The shin guard's not really. Yeah. Well, yeah, but it's under pants. So, so it's under yeah. pants. So nobody knows you're even wearing them. And your legs are always warm. And it's, it, you know, I'm talking to, you know, us Louisiana guys, 
you know, we're going to freak out when it's, you know, in the 40s, unlike a lot of people up north. So anytime it hits the 40s, you know, I'm wearing soccer socks over my socks and nobody's really going to tell me otherwise. Yeah. And then the shin guards aren't even that noticeable. Yeah. And you know the Oakdale people <laughs> that are listening, which is nobody besides your wife, uh, is probably going to be looking at your socks now. But Well, they don't play soccer here, so they don't have That's soccer fair. socks. So, um... All right, one more thing. <laughs> so, But, yeah, nobody One more thing before we go. go ahead. I want to get your opinion because I, after one of the, the recent losses, I think it was the Mavs, uh, it was, I think maybe Mason tweeted something about uh, – do you have anything you're angry about? And I started tweeting a bunch of random things because I was just being stupid that night. And uh, I asked him a question that's really near and dear to my heart. I said, do you like olives? Or why are olives on so many things? They're not good. And I want to get I want to get your take. Do you like olives? Wait, are you, are you team olives? No, I'm team olive against olives, against obviously. Olive. Okay. What kind of person uh, do you think I am? Honestly, I don't think I, – I don't have a massive – uh, preference either way, but I will agree. I'm gonna I'm gonna go with you because I'm gonna go ahead and agree. I don't get the obsession about olives. Yeah. I don't I don't get not there's like an obsession. I don't get why people even eat them. I, I don't know. It's not that I hate them. I just don't think they're necessary. I guess so. I'm on. I guess I'm on team no olive because I would never, never have I had a meal and be like, you know, it'd be great with this some olives. Right. I've never said that in my life. Never thought about it in my life. Um, again, if you force me to eat of olive, I wouldn't like spit it out. It's just, it's okay. So I'm not like anti olive, but I'm definitely anti, um, you know, olives are necessary on anything. I think that what they do is they ruin perfectly good things. I think the problem with an olive is the olive is, it's something that when you put it in something else, it takes over. It's, it's an alpha dog and it might not be the right alpha dog for your meal. And I think that's the problem is it can't just be there and and be a role player like i it has to be the center of everything and that's my problem with it it's like the to me and this is perfect analogy for right now not perfect it's i hope it's good um i think the alf i think that the the olive is like the carmelo anthony of nba offenses i do Right. So when you stick them into the trailblazers, you're changing your whole team dynamic. Yeah. And maybe this would have been a better thing maybe a year ago. Cause I think Melo is supposed to be playing pretty well right now, but um, yeah, I, that's the problem with olives in my mind. Yeah, they definitely, yeah, I guess I was wrong to say that they, I didn't really notice them. I mean, they're definitely noticeable taste. I don't really care for them. I guess is the most, is the best way to say it. It, it reminds me of, <laughs> it reminds me, and now we're in a food discussion here, but it reminds me of when, like, you know how there's there's certain meals that people eat and they need to be, like, covered in butter and, like, salt to be, like, right. good. Right, because they're like, not decent. good. Like, so I, I know I'm going to get a lot of flack on this uh, for all the uh, Pella fans and NOLA people listening, but crab is one crab? of those things where it's like, yeah, crab. And it's just like, I eat crab and, like, People dip crab and you know whatever, and you know sometimes crab served in you know, uh, you know sauteed crab. It's served in butter and that stuff. Yeah, it's good then, but me eating just a normal crab without any seasoning or anything like that or butter, I'm just like, this doesn't really. What, taste what like do you anything. eat without any seasoning or butter? Period. Well, that's a good that that I mean that's crab. Fair, I, I don't. I, I, I guess cannot I'm stand with you on that, this, but yeah. The stuff that needs to be coated in other stuff, I should say, yes, is is probably a little overrated. And whereas, 
I'm going to take the Olive step even further. If something, if you are Team Olive, if you are Team Olive, and you need Olives on something, because Olives are so overpowering, the thing you're eating is probably not that good. You know what I'm saying? I, I, agree I guess with that, that was kind of my I, whole point. I didn't love my analogy. Going back, I think it's not as good. But I do think the Olives are an alpha scorer on the wrong team. And I will stick with that. So maybe not Melo, but maybe someone else. And I, that's that's the last thing I have to say about all this. That is the last thing we have to say. So that's going to wrap up olives. this week's food podcast. I mean, Pelicans podcast here. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in to the Pelicans cast, the official Pelicans podcast for hoopball.com. You can check hoopball.com for any of your NBA and fantasy basketball needs. Please give us a five-star rating if you – decently enjoyed this show today on itunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider is uh that is it we'll see you next friday stop This has been a Hoop Bowl presentation.